0: I don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a
1: little bit more. This is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit, like, uh Hello, welcome to The End of the World, Santhropocene's episode 10. And today we're talking about Take Shelter from 2011, directed by Jeff Nichols. Uh, Jeff Nichols, one of my favorite directors, but kind of unheralded, not a real big name, sort of an indie darling. Um,
0: and yet, keeps getting money to make movies. So
1: yeah, people are uh, seeing
0: them somehow.
1: He made he had two come out in one year in 2016, I think. He did Midnight Special and Loving, and Loving got nominated for a Golden Globe or something.
0: Heard of that one? I don't have haven't seen that one. He did he do Mud as well?
1: Yeah, yeah. He did a another his first film was a called Shotgun Story. He's really good. Also with um, Michael Shannon. Also man. with Michael Shannon. Michael Shannon's that. been in. Maybe all of his movies. I don't know if he's in Loving. I'm pretty sure he's in Midnight Special. I actually haven't mud? seen those two. He's in Mud. He's the, the brother or cousin or whatever, the uncle, huh. you know, that's uh, uh, playing the guitar at one point or working on a car or something. He's just oh. like, he's hanging around the trailer. He's yeah, not a big deal. Um, but Take Shelter, his second film from 2011, is the one that I think got him the most buzz and then led into making Mud. Which is uh, I keep wanting to say milk when I say mud, but that's a very different movie. Um, mud with uh, McConaughey and um, Reese Witherspoon. Reese Witherspoon yeah. and, and bigger budget. Ty Sheridan. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and uh,
0: I'm not sure why I know that kids
1: name. I'm not either. Uh, but take Shelter about uh, Curtis LaForce and LaForce family living in Ohio, uh, kind of rural Ohio. Curtis works at a drilling company. I don't know what they're really doing other than just drilling pilot holes for something. Right, and
0: it it seems like you're almost not supposed to know exactly what they're doing. It's like it's just some sort of like archetype of extraction.
1: You know, it's just like
0: men with machines drilling holes in the ground.
1: Yeah, just very blue collar, and they never seem to be doing very much. Curtis is just sort of standing around watching, and then his friend uh, is running the machine, but really not doing it. There's only two of them kind of on the job site. Right, two-man team. So, Michael Shannon playing Curtis in what I think is his, for my money, his best role. He's been in a lot of stuff. Um, Known for playing these kind of wild-eyed, crazy characters. He's probably Uh, best known as the uh, uh, prison guard in Vanilla Sky. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's his most well-known Not not for being in uh, Best Picture winner The Shape of Water But being the garden yellow sky Um, So he plays Curtis um, A very sort of Quiet, smoldering um, Non-communicative role That he plays for most of the film Jessica Chastain playing Samantha His wife Uh, They have a daughter named Hannah Who is uh, deaf and that plays a role in the film. Shea Wiggum plays the friend, Dewart. And then Katie Mixon plays Nat, who's Dewart's wife. And every time I see her, I just think of Eastbound and Down. I, that's, she is always
0: and forever linked um, with Eastbound and Down. And just
1: uh, imagining... Um, I forgot the character's name. Jesus. Eastbound and Down. Oh, uh, uh, Danny McBride. Fuck, I can't believe I'm doing this.
0: We can't let this go. It's uh, uh,
1: Kenny Powers. Kenny Powers. Yeah, I, got it. I just think of Kenny Powers. Uh, it's near like the end of the series where he's like, I'm going to make it rain on that ass. <laughs> Rick Ross. Rick Ross. Um, so that's what I thought of we every time she was out. on screen. Um, but the, the central conceit of this film, and you get it from the very opening, is Curtis is having these dreams and hallucinations and visions about this catastrophic storm that's coming um, and it leads him to do irresponsible things, uh, take out a loan. Seemingly irresponsible. Seemingly irresponsible, like take out a home improvement loan that he can't afford to pay back. Um, He gets fired from his job for borrowing borrowing equipment without permission Um, and just generally acts kind of detached and um, people come show up in his dreams and then he kind of... Distance himself from them, so the dog attacks him. So he puts the dog out back and mm-hmm. sees his wife eventually, and becomes you know weird and distant from her. Um, so that's the the driving force of the film. And so I guess we'll just kind of start there and then see where it takes us. Because these visions, uh, it's weird because I've seen this classified as a horror film, which is strange to me because it's really not like it's. Scary, but I wouldn't call it a horror film. It's kind of a psychological thriller esque. And you can see—I
0: don't remember—I haven't watched the preview in quite some time. You can see there are a few scenes where, if they wanted to advertise it as a horror film, they definitely could have done that because there's three or four scenes, mostly the dream sequences, that that do have a sort of horror feel to them, especially the scene where. Jessica Chastain is is standing in the kitchen next to a knife, and she's all drenched in water. It's very horror esque, but these are, uh, you know, highly you know contrast to uh, the rest of the movie. They're very separate from it. So yeah, yeah, I don't. I definitely don't think it's a horror film, but there are moments that are
1: that feel like it. Yeah, and uh, actually, the way I watched it. Uh, it wasn't streaming anywhere, but it was on Shudder. So I got, like, the free seven-day trial to Shudder. Mm-hmm. Shudder, which is, like, the, the horror film streaming service. Mm-hmm. So it was a little, just made me think of that as a little strange that it was on there. But uh, all these, these dreams that he has are kind of, well, not kind of, they are terrifying. Um, the one that always sticks out to me is when his, his daughter is looking out the window at the rain. And when he walks up and looks out the window, there's, like, a random person standing there. And then people start trying to get in, and then he has that weird moment where it's like the house is lifted up off the foundation. Or, or
0: it, does the house come up, or is it just the furniture
1: that comes up off the floor? Something. I, it seems like it's some kind of, like, gravitational force thing, yeah. because he, like, grimaces and looks yeah. uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, it's it, that's a very memorable scene. Um, that, uh... W- well, and we'll get into the you know to some complicated stuff I think but one question I will probably have even by the end of this conversation is what's up with the people in the dreams that we don't see I, you, you I mean that the, you don't they're, they're not you don't know who they are you never see their faces yeah. like I think I sort of have an idea for some for for a, a lot of this movie, but I, I came away, I watched it uh, last night and I came away asking like, okay who are these people?
1: Yeah, and they and they show up they're always they always have ill intentions so like the, the dream where he's with his daughter in the truck and he wrecks and they reach into the window and like pull his daughter and take her away and mm-hmm. um, they're always and even when he sees people that he knows like Dewar or his, his wife, they, he says that they have like something in their eyes and they're know, have uh, Mm -hmm. evil in their eyes or something like that, Um, and I, you know, I have some theories myself, but I have seen people, I think, erroneously talk about them as zombies, which I think is just part of the the culture that you see people who seem to be acting, uh, you know, violently with no real explanation, and they don't really seem to have any drive other than causing harm, and you're like, oh, zombies. Well, it's
0: like not only are these characters in Take Shelter not zombies, zombies are themselves representations of other things. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. A zombie, at least in a in a movie that has anything to say, a zombie is never a zombie. How boring would that be? <laughs> yeah.
1: Know? So you know, like uh, Dawn of the Dead, it's consumerism and sure. consumers are the zombies. Exactly. And there's a lot of like. The explosion of zombie stuff after nine eleven kind of makes a lot of connections between right. the culture at large being kind of in a daze, uh, right. that kind of stuff. If so, if
0: if if anything, if I'm reminded of anything from Take Shelter, it's uh, the the people in Take Shelter in the dream sequences. It's the people in the the road. Um, yeah, you know what I'm saying in this sort of post-apocalyptic. Viggo
1: Mortensen. Nedro Morton's stuff in the is, road,
0: yes. Um, yeah, but uh, but again, that that was one of the areas where I have the least insight. I feel.
1: Yeah, and, and it is a little strange because um, it, it does sort of fit in with the kind of paranoid nature of, of Curtis's uh, reaction to these dreams, which is he completely withdraws from everyone, um, kind of take some executive decisions and and preparing the, or renovating the the storm shelter and all that kind of stuff. Um, So it kind of fits in with that idea of seeing other people as threats. I will say that it kind of made me think of um, the idea of climate refugees and this, this concept that when the shit hits the fan and people need somewhere safe to be, and start crossing borders and stuff like that, there will be that feeling of these people are coming to take our resources, which is already kind of starting in places where there's like water scarcity, um, food scarcity, whatever it may be. Um, You always have that sort of attitude that comes along of these people are a threat to me, like they're taking up resources that me and my family could use. Um, So I'm not saying that's definitely what's going on in the film, but it did kind of elicit that... I respond.
0: This this is not a real academic way of understanding a movie, but I can say, in a strange coincidence, about I'd say seventy five percent of the nightmares I've had in my life are about people trying people I see outside of a window trying to get in somehow, yeah. and so it it sort of hit close to home in these dream sequences. Because these indistinct people, I think at least in two instances, are breaking through windows or standing yeah. right outside a window, and just from sort of personal interest and uh, you know and random research and reading I've done on this on this very specific subject, what I've found uh, theories I've found are that glass and windows in general are sort of Uh, a means of perception and when you know these things these people trying to get in it sort of fits in with the larger theme of the movie of ideas trying to ideas trying to I mean it seems it seems malicious but it's not really trying to invade your mind trying to have a space in, you know, in the place of perception, which, you know, is represented in one sequence by a car. You know, they're they're trying to get in the car window uh, and then in another sequence in the house. So, again, I'm, I admit that's not a really... There's nothing... I'm not saying anything academically verifiable there, but I, that's the sort of feeling I get, is that those sequences are reflective of the larger theme of these... Seemingly terrible, bad, uh, this, this scary knowledge trying to present
1: itself, make itself known. Uh, and that does kind of fit in with this whole theme that that we can talk more about of the film being, in a lot of ways, about mental illness and and coping with mental illness. And you learn that Curtis's mother uh, was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, and so he's afraid that. It's sort of been passed on to him, and he's and these uh, hallucinations aren't helping. He, hallucinations in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. Um, so a, a big part of some mental illnesses is having invasive ideas, like ideas that you don't want in your head, like whether mm-hmm. it's suicidal uh, ideation or, in Curtis's case, these sort of visions of destruction and the end of the world. Right, um, right. So or, as the sense. mother
0: says... Uh, paranoid like she she says I thought people were listening to me or something like that yeah yeah which I uh, I don't know how I'm not sure how you we haven't talked usually we, we talk about the movie a
1: little bit before we start recording we haven't really talked about it no, all we really said was this movie's really good I'm mm-hmm. glad we're not watching Clint Eastwood <laughs> yes uh, but I'm not
0: sure I'm not sure how, how you saw the mother but I obviously I can't help but see it in this light that we've been picking up on throughout all these episodes we've recorded if the mother is in some way indicative of Mother Earth she's sort of been relegated institutionalized uh, literally Um, she's on assisted living she has been relegated to this marginal space you know um, where she has no impact on, on anyone's lives and, and Curtis even says he was He was raised by his father You know And of course you see him He's become a A driller of some type uh, <laughs> Very you know. phallic Right, going back to the Right And 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 when they're drilling They have those uh, They both have American flags On their helmets On the back of their heart has, Weirdly, yeah. you know uh, Anyway, that all that to there. say I think the mental illness Is probably I feel like the movie's The first time I saw it in 2011, I thought the movie was mostly about alternate ways of understanding, sort of epistemology, like how alternative ways of knowing and understanding and perceiving. And I think it's still a little bit about that, but it it seems to me the movie more uses mental illness as a metaphor for marginalized ideas about the planet. Um, uh, I, one thing I did say before we started recording is, uh, I can't believe I watched this movie and had almost no thoughts about climate change the first time, you know, eight yeah. years ago. And I watched it this time. I thought, oh, that's what this movie is about. Um, and I don't think it's just because we do this podcast on climate change and movies. I think I really do think it's there.
1: Yeah, and. It and I don't know what to chalk that up to other than in 2011 I wasn't as cognizant of climate change as a thing. Like, I hadn't put as much thought into it for whatever reason. Yeah. I was just kind of a uh, shithead <laughs> doing well, it, I was whatever some, I was doing. I was, you know, I was, what, 23 or four or something, so. So there's... And it kind of gets into... What I was thinking about is different ways you can read this film, because with some films, you don't really have a choice. It's just kind of put in front of you, and that's what it is. Uh, But with this, watching it, you know, these however many years later, I guess eight years later, um, after I saw it the first time, it struck me that you can read it in a few different ways, and one of them is definitely as a climate change allegory Mm -hmm. type film. Um, And that kind of pushes it into sort of mother territory for me of of if you're not reading it as a literal story about a family in crisis and you're reading it about Curtis as kind of a prophet coming to, you know, spread the news of destruction and nobody's paying attention to him. Um, And then ultimately, and we'll talk about the end, I'm sure, but being kind of validated in, in his prophecy, depending on how you read the ending. Um, the ending, this definitely brings magic into it, kind of uh, kind of in a way, sort of, it, magic's maybe not the best word, but it brings in a sort of um, supernatural otherworldliness that kind of supports that kind of reading of it as kind of more allegorical than literal. Yeah. Um, but if you, also if you read it as literal all the way through the ending, makes it a much more terrifying movie. Um in in a lot of different ways.
0: yeah. so I, I mean, the basics of the allegorical reading, which i i I think holds up for sure, the basics would be, uh, Curtis is sort of the environmentally conscious demographic, trying to warn the uninformed and the ignorant, willful, or otherwise. Um. About the impending catastrophe of climate change, which is represented in the film by just a storm, a, a giant sort of superstorm, which of course is would be a component maybe of, you know, of climate change, but not, not the thing itself, um. And and in and in that reading, the real. Uh, uh, main character in a way, where the film is sort of addressed to the character uh, played by Jessica Chastain, because she is the the person whose mind changes. Yeah. Um, you know, you see there, there's a, a a good moment when they're watching TV, and they see there's been a, a chemical spill in the city, and Curtis says uh, into the water supply, and Curtis says. Are you seeing this? You know, to his wife. This is, you know, you see, this is terrible. You seeing this? And it cuts to Jessica Chastain, who is reading some sort of gossipy magazine, and she says, That's awful. You know,
1: it <laughs> doesn't even look at the TV. Which, which is a,
0: a great metaphor for general consensus on climate change. Like, yeah, it's awful, but I'm watching Game of Thrones and nothing, you know, it doesn't
1: matter. Um, and there is a lot, and and we can get into some sort of weird psychoanalytic territory, but every time Curtis brings this up to someone, and there's the implication of he thinks he's losing his mind, and that's why he tries not to tell anyone. Mm-hmm. But whenever he does, the response is, have you been to see your mother lately? Um, which is, it, for the, the sort of hard literal narrative, is because She's schizophrenic, and they're saying, "Well, have you considered that? Have you seen your mother? Have you thought about that?" But there's also the the kind of um, you know metaphorical reading that you can impose upon it, which is, you know, have you been to see your mother? Like, have you considered the earth recently? Um, and it's funny that they're telling him this because they're kind of using it as a way to deny what he's telling them of oh well you're just insane like have you been to see your mother lately and missing that kind of second meaning and and the
0: the same way Curtis says he was raised by his father I think we're supposed to feel like society at large was raised by the father and like I said the mother is relegated to this marginal position and and yeah and, and that's why Curtis is you know has this sort of perception the sort of curse of this perception is because he—it's been passed. You know, it's genetic. It's been passed from his mother, um, and so yeah, there is the literal reading of like he's inherited a mental illness. But the uh, the metaphorical or allegorical reading is the earth contains ways of knowing and a certain set of ideological um, tenets that a certain number of people are tapped into and when you try to present this way of knowing and this way of seeing and being in the world, uh, it's it's falling on deaf ears uh, or, or worse, it's falling on actively opposed. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is a very forgettable scene in some ways when they're at the dinner table and I think you're with... Uh, his wife's family, like the in-law, his in-laws. And they say, missed you at church today, Curtis. Uh, And he says, was it a good sermon or something? And they're like, yeah. Yeah. And then immediately he says, I'm thinking about, you know, doing something with a storm shelter outside. And literally no one says anything to him. As if to say, this type of person, this sort of uh, like like, there's no. These people do not perceive any link or overlap between the subject of religion, you know, their their beliefs and um, you know how they're preparing for how they're going to deal with with these with these changes because they don't even believe the changes are coming, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a it's a. 30 second scene that says like everything there is to say about the relationship of, of uh, you know the mainstream church in America with the issue of climate change.
1: Yeah, I do like that reaction. Was it was a good sermon? It's like yeah, it was, and that's kind doesn't of doesn't elaborate to it, and it
0: says says absolutely nothing else.
1: Because the implication is, of course, it was. It was church. Why right. wouldn't it be a good sermon?
0: Right, good with a capital G.
1: Yeah, for sure capital GUD <laughs> um, but I like what you were talking about with uh, and, and this is actually the phrase I was thinking of too is this uh, ways of knowing or ways of being in the world and how there's been a lot of work on you know non-western ways of viewing the world and how they can often be labeled as mental illness depending on on what it is And so <clears throat> without trying to mysticize, mental illnesses that can be very harmful for people there is this idea that um sometimes it is just a different way of being in tune with your surroundings um and doesn't necessarily mean that the person is you know quote unquote crazy right right it's as if crazy was spelled with a capital c like
0: it's just that's just a word that we give to describe a certain type of person an offensive word you know Mm. uh Because we, we, it's like we label people just to distance ourselves from them, you know, and I think mental illness is a great example of that, or a a pronounced example of that. Um, You know, if if we have this name to call people, oh, schizophrenic, or or whatever, bipolar, all these things, which are, are very real, you know, issues, but what I'm saying is the semantics of it, the... The fact that we have such hard labels obscures the reality that this all exists on a fluid spectrum, mm-hmm. and we have. I feel like people take comfort in these labels because because it distances them from that. I'm not that. That's not me. Um, that's not possible for me. Um, when, when, like I said, really, it's it's a fluid sort of. Of a spectrum, I don't know if there's anything in Take Shelter that, you know, I, I'm not sure it's a commentary on that, but anytime I'm thinking about mental illness, I can't help but think about the stark labels we have for yeah. mental illness.
1: And you can even expand that out to, um, we were talking about the, the Wendell Berry book, Life is a Miracle. Um, and part of his argument in that is that it's hard to see life or the world as a miracle, and it's been so thoroughly labeled and and given these terms, so um, I forget exactly what he says, but it's like the difference between seeing the world as the world and as nature and seeing it as an ecosystem or an environment or something like that, Mm -hmm. and those are important terms for for understanding certain things, but he's sort of saying that um, it's that question we've kind of raised a few times of science can't tell you why climate change is bad. Right. That's sort of up to ethics and, and mm-hmm. morality and human fear to sort of know <laughs> right. why it's bad. Um, so this terminology does help you sort of make these things legible and sort of put a label on them and help you understand them in a more kind of academic sense and you could study them, but it doesn't really do much for kind of their, their kind of essence, if they even have an essence, right? So if you, you know, it's easy to say, well, this person's paranoid schizophrenic, and you can sort of list off their their symptoms like Curtis does when he talk, talks to the counselor and he's been reading the book, and he's like, I took the test in the back and I had five of the 12 or whatever it is. Right, right. Um, but that doesn't do anything to sort of explain away his visions and why he feels this kind of compulsion to do the things that he does. Um, so it, that's kind of to skip, well, we don't have to skip to the end, but just to bring up the end when he finally goes to see the, the big fancy psychiatrist in Columbus, that's kind of what happens there is he puts, he gives him a diagnosis. He puts a label on it. Mm-hmm. And because of that, it's been made legible. He can sort of see what it is. It's final. There's a stamp on it. I know exactly what it is. I have to get treatment for it. I take this medication. Yeah, it's
0: um, like language itself is like a, an invention of expediency. You know? Yeah. And, and it makes me think, I think we mentioned this maybe in the first episode, this idea of the blue marble, the the picture of Earth from outer space, that a lot of people say kind of sparked the environmental movement. It's like, oh, we're just this this uh, this little marble out floating in outer space. We've got to take care of this world. But a lot of eco critics, Wendell Berry especially, think that that picture, uh, like you're talking about uh, um, labels, that picture kind of. Um, it's like it thinks it encapsulates the world when really that's just a, that's just a picture and, and the critics say it abstracts our understanding of the world because how many people have ever had that relation to the world that that picture depicts yeah like a handful of astronauts you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. um, when really the reality for 99.999% of the world is Feet on the ground, uh, and we—I think we talked about briefly the movie Gravity and how it's a a journey away from that sort of abstracted perspective to like at the end, Sandra Bullock, feet on the ground, learning to exist in this sort of messy but uh, but real natural world. Um, but yeah, the the connection I'm trying to make there is between language as a means of expediency of just like okay let's put a label on it therefore we understand it now let's move on to the next thing that picture the blue marble is like okay we got it we know what the world is now yeah Uh, even even the term the world it's like an abstraction you know no one experiences the world you experience places in the world
1: Yeah, people, I'm going to see the world where you're going to see a very small percentage of the world. Um, So it does, language does help make those things, put them in a form that you can sort of, with your human brain, comprehend a little bit better. Digestible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So sticking with this kind of theme of of mental illness, and I actually just made a list of themes where I was like, these could all fit this film. But I want to stick with the, the mental part of it real quick. Because there's this book, uh, Climate Trauma for Seeing the Future in Dystopian Film and Fiction by E. Ann Kaplan. Um, and it talks about Take Shelter a little bit. Actually, uses a, a still from the film as the cover of the book. And oddly enough, this is a chapter that's about Take Shelter, the Happening, and the Road. Huh. It's an interesting combination uh, yeah. pre trauma, climate scenarios, and. I,
0: I can see the
1: road. Like I said, I got a weird sort of uh,
0: feeling about the road in the dream sequences,
1: but uh, the happening's a different story. Yeah. Um, and what she's talking about through all three of these films is what she uh, calls pre traumatic stress, so that we know uh, yeah. we have an idea of post traumatic stress. But here she's talking about pre traumatic stress and specifically in relation to, to climate catastrophe and saying that uh, it's this sort of mental condition that's brought about by having some sort of idea of what's coming down the line, right? So like, Curtis has this sort of panic and dread about this coming storm. So she writes about Curtis, says, as a supreme example of pre-TSS, which is what she, shortens runs it to, uh, take shelter is situated at the cusp of the cultural unconscious and the uncanny. Curtis, the protagonist, represents the cultural unconscious about global warming. He represents those humans who are anticipating climate catastrophe and who are traumatized by anticipatory visions before they have a- even happened. In a very interesting way, through editing, the narrative from the filmic present slides from the filmic present slides into Curtis's futuristic climate fantasies in such a way that at first we are not sure if the violent storms and accompanying zombie figures and she calls them zombies uh, and monstrous dogs are part of the film's narrative present, as in other zombie works. So she's talking about the blurring of kind of a timeline. We don't know. Because we open on a, one of his dreams, it's sort of hard at first to sort right. of situate yourself. Um, but this idea of Curtis as being representative of a, a cultural unconscious, I think is, uh, for me, I think that's pretty spot on. Um, and how watching this movie now, it's like, oh, yeah, obviously this is about you know climate catastrophe. It's mm. raining oil. How mm. is this? How did it, I
0: miss this? Yeah,
1: it's pretty on the nose. Um, and that's how the film opens, right? And so Curtis is sort of. Uh, the difference is, I think, now uh, people are more outspoken. Whereas Curtis in the film is very much afraid of these things, but keeps them to himself for fear of being labeled crazy. Right? It's a sort of early two thousands Al Gore inconvenient truth thing. Of yeah, the the character's
0: reluctance is is representative of, of in reality, a social um, reticence and. Even shame, you know, uh, at that time. And we're saying at that time, it, it seems like it's in the last year that anyone's even like talking about it. I, I don't, I'm not sure. I guess I, uh, first reform came out and that changed everything is what happened.
1: <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> in what my mind, that's what everyone happened. around the world united around a common cause.
0: Like um, Paul Schrader film.
1: I do think the, um and I, I really, like, should have looked up her name, or I should just know her name, but the, the young lady from Germany who was part of organizing all of the uh, youth school sit-outs for climate change awareness, who um, is, a, is kind of a front-runner for the Nobel Peace Prize, maybe has already won it, I don't know, I haven't kept up with it. Um, I think that's, that's a good sign. It's a good sign that at least young people, and people, the, what really pisses me off about it is you'll hear people usually in bad faith, saying, well, they're just kids. They should be in school learning how to fix it instead of sitting out of school complaining. And I love so much that those people get pissed off. And even if these kids don't have a perfectly formed understanding of everything that's happening, it's good that they're trying to do something.
0: Uh, Yeah, and and as much as I sort of have political respect for... uh, Or not political respect, just respect for... uh, the plight of public school teachers, um, and I think they should be paid more. And I think as a as a society, we should in today's uh, world we should value them more and and compensate them better. Uh, having spent time teaching briefly in public high school, I can say, with all due respect, the a, a big problem with public education now is the fact that by now it's filled with teachers and parents who were themselves failed by public education. And so to to think that, oh, these kids need to be sitting in a classroom where people who are too fucking scared to teach climate change are... Or even evolution. Still. Or even evolution <laughs> in 2019. I think NPR was just this last week talking about the issue of integrating climate change into curriculum, and how you have this wide variety of reasons why people don't, and it's like they 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 say they don't know enough about it to teach it. They say it's not their subject area, which yes, it is. It doesn't matter what you're teaching. This is part of. I mean, I mean, how can how can something as all-encompassing as the Earth's death not? Uh, over, I'll say this if your field of study does not somehow uh, overlap with the dying of the planet you need to find a new field of study That's because what are you doing uh, anyway there's all these reasons why teachers don't teach it um, so I completely support the idea of edu- uh, you know alternative means of education um when it comes to climate change. Their teachers are not telling kids the truth about it because I don't even know if they know the truth about it.
1: Yeah. And what kind of gives me hope, I guess, is uh, there was one, or there was a story on NPR and they were interviewing students from from Nashville, I believe, and they were talking to one uh, young lady and she, one young lady that makes me feel so old to say that, <laughs> one young whippersnapper and her response was so great because she just said, I feel like a lot of people in power aren't doing anything because they're going to be dead before any of this happens, and that's not fair. And I was like... Nailed Ding, 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 <laughs> you yep. got it. Um, so, I think a little bit of being pissed off and being like, these old people, these old fucks aren't doing anything, that's part of a, a good response, I think.
0: Yes, it's, it's, and it's, it's worse than indifference. You know, it's not... They're not doing anything. They're actively promoting... The policies
1: that cause the problem,
0: you know, it's been so a in denial. Issue.
1: Yeah, think yeah. of all the things in the United States that aren't partisan issues, which is weird. so like supporting the troops, not a partisan issue really. Um, supporting Israel, we're seeing not really a partisan issue. Yeah, uh, it's pretty everyone across both aisles, uh, both aisles. I guess there's only one aisle across the aisle. Across all Kut- the aisles, every single damn aisle. Um, But things that are partisan Like climate change That's weird It's really strange And I just I've mentioned it before I think But Almatov Ghosh In an interview he did With like the Chancellor of Vanderbilt Or something When he came to speak They had like a podcast thing That they did And uh, the guy asked him Do you encounter the same kind of resistance In other countries around the world When you talk about this And he just said no like, people in other countries more or less get it. Like, they understand that something needs to happen. Um, it's just in America because it's been made so partisan and there are so many people that, you know, uh, see the world through a red or blue lens. Right, and, that, and it,
0: it sort of shows you why in Take Shelter Nichols felt the need to slap an American flag sticker on the back of their helmets, uh, you know, in the the job they're doing, which is, like I said, sort of generic extraction uh or destruction or some of some type because there's something typically American um about climate denial um and making a virtue out of aggressive you know kind of
1: dominion um Yeah, and you see it in how the world just kind of keeps on spinning as Curtis is having these visions and he still has to go to work and they have to make ends meet and they have to, you know, get his daughter approved for her surgery and all that kind of stuff. And especially at the end when he's finally had this big blow up and he's gone to see the psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist says, Well, you should just, you know, you should get away for a while. You should sort of get back to life as normal. So what do they do? They take their vacation to Myrtle Beach, (laughs) which I can relate to. I've been to Myrtle Beach a handful of times. Um, And that's just such an sort of American thing of, like, we can't afford it, but it's going to be good for us, so let's just go do it anyway. Like, Mm -hmm. let's take this vacation. The doctor said this is what's going to be best for us. Right, and and like I was saying earlier, Jessica Chastain's character is... uh,
0: Samantha, I believe her name is. Is, I think... The audience of the film because she seems to be representative of just a kind of typical I mean she's very kind very loving a good natured person but is having a, a great difficulty in understanding the passion with which her husband is you know trying to warn her and other people about this imminent catastrophe. And so there's a real, Nichols, Nichols seems to have a real kind of genuine sympathy. You know, she is a good character. She is not portrayed as like deeply flawed and ignorant. It's just a difficult thing to understand. And, and what you see by the end is that she only really comes to believe When she's faced with the real fucking deal The storm is there Uh, Which is kind of a pessimistic In the allegorical reading That's sort of a pessimistic view
1: Yeah Um, And uh, So let's just talk about the end I guess Because that's You know the scene that really sticks out And it is a kind of moment of recognition From Samantha Where finally You know she sees kind of what Curtis has been seeing The whole time And the way that it's presented is so great. Um, In this book, Kaplan, let me see, there's a specific part where she mentions it. She says, In order for Nichols to make sure the audience knows that this is not another of Curtis's hallucinations, which we have become accustomed to, but a genuine climate catastrophe, he shows the event first through Hannah's point of view and then through Samantha's. We realize that this event is the very thing that has pre-traumatized Curtis all along. The final twist then is that Curtis, diagnosed as schizophrenic, which stabilizes his condition, so like we we're saying it makes it puts a name on it, is happily on vacation when his deep knowledge of the coming of a genuine end of the world storm turns out to be true. Um, and so the way it's presented is really great and it, it it's just good filmmaking on Nichols's part where at the beginning you have Samantha teaching, their daughter the sign the hand sign for storm mm-hmm. and so when curtis sees her kind of staring off in the distance and she does the sign for storm and it's this big like dramatic reveal yeah that's really interesting it's like the at the
0: very beginning her teaching her the sign language for storm it it's sort of the movie in a in a in a box it's uh, uh curtis trying to in a way to teach everyone a new language, you know, like a new way of thinking, a new way of understanding this coming storm. Yeah, I think I think uh, sign language and and the daughter's uh, deafness is used in a lot of very interesting ways uh, yeah. in, in the film.
1: In in that scene, especially because it's. We see earlier on when Curtis is on the job site and has the auditory hallucinations where there are no clouds. That and the is hearing such thunder. a freaky saying to me. It is. Uh, and when when the,
0: his friend is just going about his business and he keeps hearing thunder. Yeah. I thought I was going fucking crazy watching that.
1: And and so you have that. And so at the end, because Hannah's deaf, we know that, he's not, that it's not an auditory hallucination. She's seeing it, too. And then Samantha coming out and it's such a great shot when she's standing like looking through the the glass door and you see it reflected in the windows like these tornadoes forming and this like giant wave and and all this terrifying weather shit happening Mm -hmm. off in the distance. Um, And there's that that great final moment of recognition where Curtis is terrified and he looks at her and he's like is this real? And she just kind of gives him a nod and, and he's like Okay. And, the, and the movie ends with her saying
0: okay like, here <laughs> we go we got to deal with this Again I think that really adds weight to the reading the allegorical reading of, of her as sort of the the audience of the film accepting finally but only like I said when she's confronted with the the immediacy of the storm yeah uh, I'll say one of the one of the uh, smartest, aspects of this movie to me is the uh, scene when they, uh, the storm comes at, at night and they go down to the shelter you know it's a very intense scene and she's trying to convince him to open the shelter door to they, so they can go back out she promises him there's no storm and the fact that when they open the door everything's fine but there is evidence of a storm in the rhetoric, you know, know, reading this as an allegory, it's like the rhetoric of climate change. It's like the, the idea that it's all overblown and, and it's like, yeah, I mean some, maybe some negative things are going to happen, but it's going to be fine.
1: The people just like picking up branches. People are
0: picking up branches, the power's out for a little while, but it's no big deal. This, and, and that comes right after the, easily the best scene in the film where Curtis has his freak out, in the at the in public, you know, at like the fish fry, yeah. uh, the Lions Club, thing. and so right, and so he's just had this, you know, Jonathan Edwards, uh, sinners in the hand of an angry God, prophecy sermon, you know, about a storm. coming. I we haven't put a clip in in an episode in a while. Oh, I yeah, think well, we I'm have good. to include it's his such a speech good there. So. Sleep well in your beds, because if this thing comes true, there ain't going to be anymore. Anyway, so so that mild storm where they go into the shelter comes right after that, and you can just sort of hear people laughing, you know, off camera, making the... Uh, I'm saying theoretically, you can hear the characters laughing about how this fucking crazy guy predicted a storm. It's like, storm. oh, the power went out. Big deal. And they don't even understand. This is just the prelude. This is just the foreplay to the climax of the storm coming at the at the end.
1: Um, but yeah, that the scene in the the fish fry, that, or whatever it is. Is it a work
0: that, event? He's at.
1: No, it's like a like a church thing, I think, okay. or like a community thing. They've been organized. His wife had a hand in organizing it, and because she makes him go, right? Because so she says I need some normal or whatever it is, right? But and, man, and that scene. So, so he's kicked Dewart, who's like his best friend, kicked him off his crew because he had the dream where he attacked right. him, so he he pushed him away, and so uh, and Curtis gets fired because of it, and all this stuff, and so Dewart confronts him, and Curtis is like he is the whole movie saying like I, you know calm down I don't want to fight you and then Dewar punches him and he's like even then he's like damn it why do you and then he pushes him over the table and that's when he loses his shit and flips the fucking lunch table and goes off and it has that, that great line and just the way it's phrased where he's like sleep well in your beds because if this thing happens if this if this thing is real there's not going to be more <laughs> and just that it, just the readings of that of um, there's not gonna be like there's not gonna be existence anymore. There's not gonna be any more. So there's not gonna be any. You know we're here with all this abundance and we're at this fish fry or whatever. Like there's not gonna be any of this anymore. This abundance. Um, it's just a really good like almost biblical phrasing. Yeah, there's I mean, not gonna it, be it's anymore.
0: it's interesting that they're that they're eating fish. that I think there's some some connection to uh, to the gospels there. Uh, as as they're eating the fish you have this sort of sermon being preached uh, and like but it, like I said it's fire and fucking brimstone it's a it the the look like, in prophecy. His eyes, like
1: of all of Michael Shannon's like crazy you know bulging eye scenes that he's had I think this is probably his best um, and it really like every time I watch it it kind of makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up you're like oh fuck and just the people's reactions are really well done you know the one woman who's like like clutching her chest, she's like,
0: "Oh, oh my god!" Right, and it's it's interesting too how they they seem to be more scared of him yep. than, than what, what he's saying, saying you, know? you know.
1: And that I think that's spot on. Yep. Um, I made a list of themes that I think the film could be about because I was watching a um, an interview, a short interview with Jeff Nichols, and he was talking about the end scene. And he was saying that he's all for people reading it in a lot of different ways, and he doesn't give, like, an absolute answer uh, regarding whether or not it's real or if now Samantha's having a dream, whatever it may be. He just says that all that matters is that Curtis and Samantha connect. And he, he called it a movie about marriage and connection and trust and that all that matters is that in that moment they're on the same page finally for like the first time in the film. Mm -hmm. Um, Which I thought was really interesting. So those are some of the themes, right, of connection. There's definitely like a marriage, family sort of theme. Uh, Trust, for sure, because Curtis doesn't really... Tells his doctor, and that's kind of it. (laughs) And maybe the the counselor. Um, Mental illness, we've already talked about. Communication, definitely, with like not just between him and his wife, but with, like you said, with the daughter and the fact that they're learning sign language and all that stuff is very, uh, very interesting. Um, one thing that I wrote down that I think is a, a sort of low-key, big theme of the film is is healthcare and the healthcare system. Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, his daughter, they're trying to get this uh, surgery, this implant surgery, which in itself is very controversial in the deaf community. It's kind of cochlear implant surgery. Um, so they finally get it approved and because his insurance is very good the 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 uh insurance lady tells her um then when he loses it that's kind of when samantha finally breaks away from him and is like this is too far and that's when she smacks him um but yeah and curtis uh having trouble paying for the psychiatrist he sees a local counselor instead and he goes to that counselor and seems to be benefiting from it and then one day it's a different person because the the former counselor has left and gone somewhere else, um, and he Curtis just gets up and leaves the room. I Love that scene! <laughs> like uh, he has gotta start. The guy's like, "Let's long just long. start there," and he's just like, shakes his head and leaves. Um,
0: you know, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, that was a phrase that I believe is repeated, where he says, "the the first counselor says, your mother suffered from schizophrenia." Let's start there. And then he you know, she leaves and he sees the second psychiatrist or counselor and he says, Your mother had schizophrenia. Let's start there. And that repetition of the phrase let's start there is like Nichols saying the conversation doesn't even go back far enough to assess who the mother is. Or, or what that represents. Like I said, on this allegorical reading, they are just starting from the assumption that that, like we said earlier, way of knowing, way of being, is crazy and and not has no place in the discourse. Uh, let's start there. We can't start there. You have to go way further back. You know what I'm saying? Um,
1: but yeah, that's a... I, I love the scene where he just gets up
0: and walks away.
1: Like, yeah. It's also you know a lot of general kind of discussions about climate change that don't even get started because you start from this uh, sort of idea of you're either sort of aware of it and willing to talk about it or you say it's not even true. Mm. Um, so that's a huge barrier to just get into discussing it, let alone getting into intricacies or you know climate models or whatever it may be.
0: well, and and another. I think a brilliant part of the film Is the Like you said The insistence on this Sort of financial Trouble that the family's having I think in the allegorical reading You're you're seeing a lot of This type of stuff In the news now With the Green New Deal Uh, And and of course The conservative response As always is How are you going to pay for it Yeah It's
1: austerity Like we
0: can't do that Without austerity Right And so all these All these scenes Where you have the The bank You know the, The He's applying for a loan You know, the guy saying this is a risky loan uh, is sort of a parallel to the conservative response saying, how are you going to pay for all this, uh, all these changes that have to be made to make, you know, uh, to reduce our
1: emissions and all these things. Uh, And it's right off the hills of 2008, the financial collapse. Right. Um, And he even says, "Hey, The guy at the bank bank bank. says, you know, banks are not lending like they used to. Right. Right. Um, yeah, it is the idea that people, and to me it boils down to people aren't willing to pay any kind of price, like they're not willing to sacrifice any bit of their comfort or whatever it may be in order to make these changes, and how do we know if they're even, it always gets back to right. that, I'm like, oh, you need my money? Well, how do we know this is even a real thing? Right, and, and that's why when he, when
0: Curtis goes off on his fish fry prophecy rant, band name I call it, uh, he... He mentions the beds. Yeah,
1: I you know, hope you sleep, sleep well in it's,
0: it's about their comfort. You better enjoy it while it lasts.
1: Because you see in the shelter he's built, it's just these little cots, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, he put in his, his toilet. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, with, That's with the knoll, first thing. No, like, door and everything. Um, so, yeah, the, this kind of economic issue, this financial problem is, is kind of the driving domestic drama that's happening in the film that's
0: why most people think he's crazy is because he's, he's willing money. to spend all this money
1: because you know? he takes out a home improvement loan for something that and he you see him uh, late at night when everyone's asleep making a list of everything he'll need and like adding it all up and mm-hmm. he just like circles it a bunch of times and you, and you see that people think that's this is interesting
0: I think that people think he's crazy or losing his mind because he's it seems to them that he's becoming unwilling or too irresponsible to take care of his family when actually everything he's doing is to take care of his family. And that's definitely, I think related to the discourse on climate change and like what, what does responsibility entail? The conservative response as always is, you know, don't spend any money, take care of your, your own little space. Um, and the more liberal response is, "This is what the money is for. This is yeah. what we should invest in." If it's for anything,
1: why, right. why isn't it for this? Right. And you see it. Um, you see Curtis. He's kind of aware of that. Like we say, like he spends most of the film hiding this problem he's having. Like he, he pisses in the bed, and so he, like, waits till everybody leaves and like wa- washes the the sheets and mm-hmm. all that. Um, and so he goes to the army surplus store buy gas masks and he asks the guy do these come in kid sizes and the guy says no kids have to have this whole special thing and there's another one of those great little scenes where Curtis gets in the car with this box with the gas mask in it and he pulls it out and then he just like shoves it back in the box and like throws it in the and he's like disgusted with himself he's like god this is stupid Why am I even doing right right but he, disgusted he's disgusted with the going, fact that he's even
0: Entertaining this idea, yeah, yeah,
1: but he can't stop, and so he keeps going. And th- another one of those little scenes um, that gets back to this idea of of Curtis's this kind of prophet figure is when he's driving his wife and daughter home um, from the school like parent teacher thing, and he pulls over to the side of the road uh, on the highway and like gets out, and he's watching this like crazy lightning happening off in the distance, and his wife and daughter are asleep. And he's just looking at it, and he just turns and says to nobody, "Is anybody seeing this?"
0: Right. And he says,
1: "He sees it. Yeah, sees it. He says it again. Is anybody seeing this?" And it's just this crazy lightning, and just people are driving by, not even looking at it. And he's and, like, "And no, what they're, is that they're asleep. Yeah, yeah, or they're insane. just driving by it, and not even paying attention, right. on their way right. to somewhere else." Yeah, that's a that's a great.
0: Like I said, I'm just kind of embarrassed. Watching it for the second time, that I did not see any of this the first time. I thought it was about mental illness and nothing else, you know. Uh, yeah. But that's, in a way, that's to Nichols's credit, I think. Yeah. That
1: I enjoyed it when I
0: watched it in 2011
1: a great deal. Yeah. That, you know, being afraid of climate catastrophe is a sign of mental illness. Like, you, you must be unwell. Yeah. Uh, I like when he go. He goes to the library
0: and he gets a couple books, and you see when he's he takes them and he's like reading them down in the shelter. And one of them is is like a very practical sort of construction book, I th- like or, or some sort of manual. Yeah. And then the other one is understanding mental illness. It's like a manual for your brain. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, kind of. well, it's like it's like I feel like those two two books are supposed to highlight that tension we're feeling, like. Either this guy is a practical, responsible person, or he's fucking crazy. Yeah. Uh, another moment sort of like that is, the, I think the first time he calls the psychiatrist, to, or to, to inquire about a psychiatrist, he's pumping gas.
1: Yeah, and it's like up in the high 50s. He's yeah, and, yeah there's a, a truck. And, and the
0: shot is on the the... The, the gas. toll of the gas yeah. pump yeah um, which is I mean definitely has some relevance to some of the things we've talked about uh, concerning oil and, and fossil fuels and
1: their you know a central part of uh, you, ubiquity almost said ubiquitousness which ubiquitousness it ubiquity? ubiquity yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so yeah, I don't I don't know how I missed it either other than to say like in 2011 I wasn't as concerned um, wasn't as aware of a lot of these things um, I was in I had just graduated from no when did I graduate from undergrad I had like either just graduated from undergrad or was already in my master's program when I saw the film um, so my head was not <laughs> in that kind of space yeah um, but now it's just like of the films we've watched this is maybe, one of the I don't know the ones I'm most in favor of its message I guess yeah yeah um. because we watch some films that and the the, our purpose for watching them is so we can critique them and sort of talk about what they're doing wrong or what they're leaving out like we watched Interstellar and talked about how it's taking a negative in our opinion a negative view of environmental issues um, as opposed to First Reform that we watch because it is this sort of you know, wonderful uh, encapsulation of a, a, a kind of uh, awareness of climate change. Um, and with this film, it's it's definitely more like first reform, or like this is a film doing it right in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And, and again, very
0: unfortunately, this is a marginal, independent...
1: A running theme, we're finding, is that the marginal ones are the ones that are saying the right thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's not really a surprise. Because Like like the themes of, of Take Shelter Nobody wants to hear Bad news uh, And so films In reality That uh, You know That have bad news To share Are not going to be popular um, In fact They're going to be viewed The way Curtis's sermon is Like that's just Crazy liberal Asshole Yeah <laughs> Yeah
1: Yeah Um Um I feel like there's... Oh, so I, I wanted to return to something that you said about the dreams. Okay. So you're talking about... Uh, it's this idea of someone or something trying to get in, and that's kind of where the threat comes from. To make itself known, yeah. And I think that's what makes the scene with his wife so unsettling, and the way it's shot is, is really clever, I think. So she's in the kitchen, and she's... At the door to the garage is wide open and she's standing there, like, dripping wet from the the storm, and you see her, like, wet footprints. Um, So it's this idea where before people were trying to get in and they're breaking windows and all that kind of stuff, she has access. Like, she can just come in sort of at will. Um, And the fact that she's this kind of familiar, you know, uh, person and and has this access to get into the home, and therefore, I guess, Curtis's mind, if you want to think about it, because he's always... They seem to be kind of the home or the inside of the car or sort of the inside of his head in these dream worlds. Yes. Um, and so it makes that even more threatening of someone who doesn't need to break in. They can just sort of come in at will. And what's so clever about the scene in my opinion is that you don't see any kind of like altercation. You see her turn and look at a knife sitting on the counter and then like he sees the knife and they kind of look at each other and have this weird moment and then that's and then we see him at the breakfast table, looking very upset. Yeah, yeah. and she touches him, and he sort of flinches. Yeah,
0: yeah. And so that that glance at the knife is sort of a question: Are we about to be at odds? Is there going to be a a uh, a split here, an altercation? And and obviously, in the allegorical reading, not a physical altercation, a an ideological. Altercation. Um, that, that, you know, you always hear about like a house divided in, in a joking way of like you have a, I don't know, a Mets fan and a Yankees fan. <laughs> yeah. Why, I don't even, I don't, people don't watch baseball, but, uh, whatever <laughs> the analog is to that for college football or, or, uh, as Broncos and Chiefs, it's fan. a weird one to go well, with. I it like makes the, sense,
1: but it's a weird one to go well, with. I like the
0: Broncos. So uh, anyway, uh, you don't really hear often about uh, a house divided by climate ideology. You know? Yeah are Are there married couples who are on the opposite side of the fence in terms of environmental issues? I kind of doubt it. Me too. It, that, that, seem, to that seems about. so essential. In, I just don't know how you could, how you could exist in the same, in it's a loving the, relationship uh,
1: with such radically different ideas. Yeah, it's like the Thanksgiving dinner thing of like yelling at your uncle because he says Trump's going to make America great again or whatever. <laughs> I right. uh, had a pretty cool one over. Uh, I forget what it was—like Christmas or like my niece's birthday. Like my mom and her her ex-husband my, my sister's dad like arguing about the border wall <laughs> and my mom's just like it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of <laughs> it, it, it was pretty cool they, um, they get it all worked out though <laughs> no they just sort of like it was one of those things where like they both kind of had their say and then there's like, <sighs> and that was kind of the end of it
0: <laughs> yeah that's cause there's, that's the best way it get yeah. in like, no one figures anything out and, and, it's, and it's so much about identity it's about you know, letting the other person know that this is, I am representative of this type of thinking and I'm defining myself against your type of thinking, and we're both going to go do our jobs on Monday that have nothing to do with any of
1: this. Yeah. You know? Basically. Uh, both retired. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like, we're so in. we're not. We're going to watch uh, uh, The Price is Right. Basically. Yeah. Uh, so, and I think, at least in the film world, it's a good sort of, Comparison because you have the people on the outside who can, you know, look at Curtis as being crazy or whatever it may be. And and for the most part, he can just sort of let it roll off his back. And, like, he does lose his job and loses his friend, but he ultimately doesn't seem to care very much about it. Um, Whereas when Samantha shows up in his dream, it's sort of this implication that now she's going to sort of come after his Project that he's working on and that's Mm -hmm. when it's going to really be an issue. Yeah, there's there's something really at stake there. Yeah And it it ultimately it's sort of it's a really bleak way of reading it, but it makes a lot of sense to me is His love of his family is ultimately what dooms his family Because he he gives in he's like, okay, I'll see the psychiatrist. I'll do all the stuff I'll I'll go to the into the institution the psychiatrist is just like, you need to be committed.
0: <laughs> right, and and he even says, you know, you're, saying, you're telling me I need to leave my family. Yeah, and he's like, I
1: think you need to commit to some treatment. This very, like, manicured-looking psychiatrist. Um, and because Curtis gives in, because he loves his wife and his daughter, the film kind of implies, like, well, that's what fucked them in the end. Because they mm-hmm. go to Myrtle Beach, and they're at the the literal worst place you could be at or something like that well, what,
0: what I think what I think maybe the film is saying is that he, uh, he needs to trust himself his way of knowing is the correct way of loving his family yeah it's only when he accepts this sort of put upon uh, or imposed notion of how he should love his family that he gets into trouble and, and you know puts his family in danger, but if he goes by his intuition, he is actually protecting them.
1: Yeah, and at one point, when he first tells Samantha about the the dreams he's been having, he says something like, I don't need you to understand, I just need you to believe me. Um, And for a while, she sort of goes along with it, but then when, when the money gets involved and he loses the healthcare coverage, that's when... It's kind it just of slaps the shit out of yeah, it. yeah, uh, and you know, understandably so, um, yeah. for someone who doesn't, you sees what he's seeing as being just insane, like mm-hmm. something that they don't need to be worried about, um, and just that Myrtle Beach trip and how that's sort of, it's there throughout the movie at the beginning. She says, "Well, we need to send in a deposit on the condo," and he says, "Oh, just right. write the check; it's fine." And it, it, you know, it's it's great that. All, all this work
0: they're doing you know this money saving they're doing is all I think it's kind of an indictment on our culture that, that Nichols is making um, this is what they're working for and saving for is just to have this shitty little A week at Myrtle Beach week at Myrtle Beach and it's like for what and like all, all the you know extractive destructive work he's doing All the sacrifices they're making are just for this petty,
1: you know. It's not not even. It's like a. It's not even like a, a good vacation. I guess. Like I don't know. It's like a simulacra of what a good vacation would be. Like we're at the beach. We're at the condo that we rented. Like look how middle class we are. Right. Really, it's just. It's kind of sad. It's like people going to oh we'll we'll, you know get a cabin in Gatlinburg and go to Dixie Stampede that kind of thing Right, it's just yeah like you're saying if that's if that's what all of your effort and all of your alienated labor is going toward then like why why is that something that you should strive for why is that should that be your aim in life Mm -hmm. why is that having your shit together right Um, And and that's what everything is working towards and that's just absurd yeah and it's sort of that scene where so she sews her curtains and sells them at the flea market or farmers market or whatever it is and she puts her money in that big like cookie tin mm-hmm. and there's a scene where uh, she's become increasingly worried and, and annoyed about Curtis and instead of putting money into the can she takes it all out and puts mm-hmm. it in her purse right. and it's that sort of thing of like he can no longer be trusted with the mm-hmm. with the money with the financial situation um, and that sort of equates control of money with, like, trust in your spouse. Like, that's kind of the highest level of trust you can have when you right. trust them with money, um, which is strange. Yeah. It's how a lot of people feel. That's why we have prenups. But it, it, it is kind of strange when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. But but again, on on the with the allegorical reading,
0: it is, I think, goes back to that point we made earlier about, One of the biggest issues in climate, preparing for climate change, and just the issue in general, is like I said, we're seeing with discussions about the Green New Deal, is fiscal issues. How how do you pay for it? Who's going to pay for it? And of course, the people saying this are the people. You know who who never stopped to look at the military's. I was going to say no one, no one stopped budget.
1: in two thousand three. Nobody looked at the invasion of Iraq and said, "How are we going to pay for this?" Yeah, I mean, people did, but no one no one listened to them. Right, right. Um, so there's money. Yeah, there, there's money to be found. It's just you have to be willing to we step to, on some toes.
0: You 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 really see what a culture values. Literally, uh, you know, by by what it spends its money on, uh, and by what it advertises, I think. Uh, so by that criteria, I, I guess America cares about the military, and beer, and fast food, and cars.
1: Man, we were so we were at trivia the other night, and we we're in the sports bar, and uh, I hate sports bars, but I like trivia, so that's why I go. <laughs> And so, on one of the TVs, they had, like, you know, all these TVs, like basketball and baseball games. One of them had, like, a random hunting channel on, for some reason. And I, at one point, looked up, and it was a commercial for Glock handguns. And it was supposed to be, like, how portable Glock handgun. There was a woman, like, strapping on her Glock before she went for a run in the park, that kind of shit. In a sports bar. Yeah. On TV, hunting channel...
0: Glock commercial. Yeah. That's. In that between, is,
1: like, the Braves Reds game and something else, I guess, a basketball game. That's America. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Reds won that game, I think. <laughs> <Just laughs> Which was, was unusual. Yeah, fuck um, the Reds. I'm a fan, and yes, fuck the Reds. Um, so, just a We've talked a lot about Jeff Nichols. You did a good job, Jeff right? it's like, well, You, you made a job. good film, Jeff uh, <laughs> And what I like about Nichols Is that he's You know, he's from Arkansas There aren't very many people In the arts From like Places like Arkansas right. uh, So he does bring this kind of Bill Clinton played the saxophone <laughs> I forgot about jazz great <laughs> Bill Clinton uh, But I guess Levon Helm was from Arkansas From the band but, anyway, he brings this sort of acknowledgement and sort of knowledge of the sort of middle America, kind of conservative, very family-based, very kind of wholesome um, image. So we have, you know, in, in Take Shelter, it's in, you know, middle of nowhere in Ohio. It's a very sort of, like, salt of the earth kind of image. You know, they they have... You know, supper with their in-laws And they're they're having fried chicken And she makes eggs in her cast iron skillet every morning That kind of stuff Um, And so in his other films Like Shotgun Stories, his first movie Is a a film, it's kind of a weird film But it's about these three brothers And this sort of importance of family And it also has weird stuff with parents And and the mother Um, And then in Mud Which was, you know, his sort of big Big budget film um, it also has the story of uh, of uh, Ellis, the, the central kid, and his family, and his father, and the sort of tradition of, we're people that live on the river, and this is what our family has done, and this is how we make our living. And uh, Mud, when he meets him, is sort of this surrogate, kind of masculine mm-hmm. figure, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it's just sort of just like, you see the kids running around playing in the woods and crap like that, and it's just very... He has this ability to show us things that are so very kind of common and kind of run in the mill, run of the mill, but do it in a way that's very kind of extraordinary. So, like in mud, you have the boat in the tree, and that's sort of like this magical, mm-hmm. magical realist sort of thing. And take shelter. You have Curtis's visions that kind of disrupt that whole idea. But it is kind of nice that he's able to couch it in a way that's so relatable. And, and so, like the kitchen and take shelter, a lot of action takes place in the kitchen and it looks like like your grandma's kitchen or something mm-hmm. i know when they were uh, having the dinner there's a a bowl of fried chicken on the table and it's one of those like glass or like ceramic bowls it's like painted it was like brown on the outside with like a flower pattern i was like my mom had that bowl yeah um, and it, it's this very sort of familiarity of sort of like average
0: the kind real, of middle America, real America yeah. yeah yeah like like city like new york city and los angeles are so overrepresented in American films and that's why you meet people from overseas and they, they think America is just concrete coast to coast cityscape you yeah. know um, and, and I think there's some political implications there too of we saw in the last election that you know the media the, the mainstream American media based largely in big cities uh, Washington D.C. New York Los Angeles had no fucking clue what was coming. Uh, <laughs> no. You know what I'm saying? They yeah. had no clue. They were shocked, and that's because what counts as real, and you see this uh, in the in American literature forever too, is is that what we call realism? Is is New York? You know what I'm saying? Yeah.
1: And everything else is regionalism. Everything else
0: is regionalism or or local color. or yeah. You know some other marginalized category when really I mean it was 90 something percent of the country um, and so I think it is important to see to see these kind of underrepresented places I mean not just people but places uh, in in movies I, one of my one of my favorite movies of all time um, I think does a very good job of this and it's uh, uh, it's called June bug uh, one of a- Amy Adams first movies uh, but that was one of the first times I remember seeing a movie and thinking uh, they're showing a real place in America I think the story takes place in North Carolina but it felt I, like I felt like it could have been here you know it could have been it could have been where I grew up it could have been where you grew, where you grew up uh, and you just don't see it enough uh, yeah. you know you grow up watching only mainstream movies You you, you start thinking like Everything's either like... If there is any sort of pastoral, rural depiction, it's just like a, a cornfield in Kansas, you know, and then they and then they move to the city when they grow up, you know. How many movies are about children, you know, finding their way... Uh, what's it called? A coming-of-age tale, and, and the big solution to all their problems is moving Go to, to New York City. Like, fuck that.
1: Yeah, there's a great... Um the novel, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia by Mohsin Hamid. Um, it's written like a self-help book, and so each chapter is a piece of advice that you need to follow to get rich in Rising Asia, and the first one is move to the city. Um, so there's there's a lot of stuff like that in uh, a film we've talked about that we are actually talking about before this that we might do sometime in the future, um, Gus Van Sant's Promised Land. There's a scene where they're in, like, Pennsylvania or wherever they are, and one of the characters says, it looks like Kentucky. And used it as a pejorative sense, which I'm used to. You know, Kentucky equals bad, shitty place. Um, but Matt Damon's character says, 20 minutes outside of any city looks like Kentucky. Right? So that's, yeah, this is what America looks like. Right. Um, this is America. Right. right. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it was a, one of the big theories of why Trump was elected is that that was everybody in. You know, quote unquote, real America saying, like, you will pay attention to us. Like, mm-hmm. you need to hear our voice. Um, and there's more to it than, than that, like, racism. But that was a big Yeah, uh, the real theory. question
0: is, so, so why why do those people find their voice in a New York-based billionaire? Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck?
1: Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of layers <laughs> going on there. Um But, you know, that's what a movie like Take Shelter does. And I think of, like, Winter's Bone, too, when I think about that. Um, And there's, you know, not everyone lives in a very rural, meth-racked you know, place. Um, But I just remember the scene of her going to the high school and, like, talking to the military recruiter and how just the look of the high school Mm -hmm. and, like, how people were dressed sort of gave me flashbacks. And I was like, oh, this is very, like, realistic and grimy right Mm -hmm. now. Um, yeah, that's how the world... Looks for a lot of people. Um, what everyone else calls flyover country—that's right. all it's there for—is to be traversed. It's an obstacle, right? Um, right. and that—that's uh, this is kind of
0: incidental, but uh, something I really like about Wendell Berry's fiction, uh, of which I've only read maybe three, three or four books, uh, but it's it's not as as widely read as his, you know essays but um, I really like how local it is it's about one fictional town Mm -hmm. you know based on his town uh, Port William and you you can sort of see he Barry sort of goes out of his way to insist that this is as real as you know as any other place and that there's no reason to broaden your scope um, to have a to tell a, a meaningful realistic story now of course we don't want to gloss over the problems of sort of regional or like tribalist thinking yeah. uh, obviously there's just rampant racism in you know in sort of thinking tribally and thinking regionally exclusively uh, obviously, there's there's got to be more nuance to it than that, um, but environmentally, um, there's there's a lot of value in thinking locally and and writing stories about people devoted to their to their place and improving their place, uh, just within it within a very small scope.
1: It's, you know Barry's famous quote of "What I stand for is what I stand on." Mm-hmm. Uh, he's worried very much about Port William, right, because it's an important community, right? It needs people to, for one, to be there, to live there, which is an issue that mm-hmm. at least I know, like, uh, you know, I talked to my dad who still lives back in my hometown, and he just says, you know, it's it's a dead town, like, there's nothing going on here, like, all the kids are leaving, there's nothing, there's no jobs, um, there's nothing going on, right? Uh, so, for one, it needs to, you need to have some reason to stay there, uh, and that gets into, like, infrastructure building and government funding and all sorts of you know, big hefty shit um, but having an awareness of your immediate community and sort of how you fit into it how you can help it thrive, all that sort of stuff uh, is an issue um, and in the film Curtis's hallucinations kind of take him out of that a little bit and, and in a lot of ways he kind of becomes not selfish but sort of protecting his family like Kind of becomes sort of tribalistic of like I need to build this shelter for me and my my family and that's right. who I'll protect. and alienates
0: himself from the people who are opposed to him. Yeah, you know that, that that is an interesting aspect of it. He, which reminds me, um, another question I had is what what's your take on the dog? You know the well, the early action he takes of. of you know, building this dog a pen, and separating it from from his
1: daughter and, and the rest of the family, and then giving it away to, to his brother who come. I really like the scene with his brother when he gets mad and he's like, "Come over there and remind you what it's like to get your ass whooped." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And gives the dog away. Uh, Red, the dog who everybody in the family likes, and apparently it was Curtis's dog like before they got married or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure, because that's his first big...
0: Wait, how do you know it's Curtis's dog before he got married?
1: Oh Well, I was assuming that, because when he puts him outside, Samantha says, well, he's he Red's your dog. And he says, yeah, he's my dog, so I decided to put him outside. So, I don't know if I'm just, like, making that up, but hmm. um, it makes it sadder to me to imagine that, like, he had the dog before he met his wife. Yeah. Um, but that's his first big... The dream he has where the dog breaks loose of his... his Tether and like bites his arm, and then he wakes up and he has pain in his arm all day. It's this kind of psychosomatic um, thing that he's having from the dream, and that's what what motivates him to put the put the dog outside.
0: Well, this this may this may sound a little far uh, <laughs> fetched, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, I'll throw you a bone on this one. Uh, yeah, I, that's all I got. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. The uh I can't remember what I was reading. It made me think of uh, you know it's oh, it was Jensi, our mutual friend, was saying that uh, the stuff she's been reading made made it hard for her to um, separate uh, or, or to not think about the idea of the dog as a Kind of a an embodiment of maybe his sort of beastly side, Curtis's kind of wild yeah. side that he has to cage off. And weirdly, maybe I'm a pervert, but there's a when when you see the dog go into the pen and he's like talking to him. He this is how it's going to have to be. The dogs. Uh, Wiener
1: is very visible. It's it's like silhouetted, against yeah, the sun. and like he, the
0: dog's breathing pretty heavily, and so it's sort of sort of flopping a little bit. Oh yeah, okay. and so so I don't know if this is some sort of like sexual thing, like like he's having to put away his beastliness, his creatureliness. I don't know. Uh, I don't really know how that fits in. That's what she said.
1: Uh, <laughs> God. Uh, No, I don't know. I mean, I think you could read it that way. Um, I was just reading it as like um, the sort of uh, this idea of trust, right? And so the dog is sort of, if you think about it, to own a dog is, is a weird proposition. Uh, especially if you have a large dog, so you you have this dog, and if if the dog really wanted to, it could probably kill you. Uh, it could at least you know do a lot of damage, but because you have you know mutual understanding and and love and respect or whatever uh, whatever emotions you have with your dog, um, that doesn't happen. So you can like put your neck really close to where the dog's mouth is and not worry about it killing you. That kind of thing. Uh, so it just made me think of. That trust kind of being violated, right? And that's why when a family dog does something like that, it can be sort of it can be really shocking, like upsetting to people because it's Mm -hmm. like, "Dude, I thought I could trust you." Could you? (laughs) Um, So I just kind of thought about it as like a good way to show how far he's willing to go for what he thinks is coming. Um, A good way to represent that is to show that he's willing to give up on his pet, like on this dog that he's had and that he cares for. Right. And dogs are so often in movies, like you, you mentioned
0: with uh, the American, American sniper and yeah. there's often used uh, as just automatic sentimentality, yeah. you know, and, and take shelter. We're sort of not on his side because we're so conditioned to, you know, identify the hero with the person who is very kind and loving to animals and and you see he's very skeptical of his dog and separates his daughter, who's maybe the most endearing character you've ever seen on film, this little deaf girl. Uh, and, and she you know, clearly loves this dog, and he separates them. So, so it's like, in a way, Nichols puts us in the position of the town and, and his wife, and, and so we're kind of skeptical of him right off the bat. Yeah, and Like, what's wrong with him?
1: Like, oh, he's willing. I would never do that to my dog, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, it, it does, and a lot of things with Curtis kind of test your empathy, um, which I'm always interested in seeing. Um, I, I don't know if I talked about it on here or if I just, like, mentioned this, but the the whole, the, what I like about, uh, to bring him up again for, like, the hundredth time, Cormac McCarthy's Child of God is Lester Ballard and how it's a big test on your empathy or, like, Humbert Humbert and Lolita or something like that Um, and it's not to that level with Curtis but you do have this thing where you're like you know I'm not I'm not really coming along with you on this like I think what you're doing is a little bit crazy like I think and I I feel like most people would watch Take Shelter and be like Curtis is mentally ill and it's going to come out that he's mentally ill and then everything will be resolved somehow it'll be like Shutter Island or something yeah 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 no such luck. Yeah. No. It's and that's, much more
0: complicated and worse than that.
1: Yes, and that's why the ending if if even if you read it whether whether you, you read it literally or allegorically, it's very kind of arresting and you're like, "Holy shit." Whether you yeah, whether you read
0: it literally or
1: allegorically. Allegorically, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, it it's it's an inconvenient truth at the end of the film. Um, and people that I I know that have seen the movie, or that I've like shown it to we'll see that last scene and they're just like, What the fuck? It's like, yeah, that's that's the reaction you're supposed to have. Yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah.
0: <laughs> I think that's all I got.
1: Yeah, I don't really know what else there is to I mean great, like I said we
0: great fucking movie.
1: Yeah. We were very glad to be talking about this after last week and all the not great movies that we were talking that about. That
0: was a shit show.
1: <laughs> um uh. so yeah, let's take shelter. Um, so, for next week, we've decided to do something a little bit different, and it's again one of these where it's like talking about a few different things, but it's kind of a, a central theme of, of eco terrorism. Yeah, the uh,
0: an eco terror trilogy.
1: Yeah, and it's sort of, uh, kind of inspired by uh, by Toller, Ernst Toller, and uh, First Reformed. Yeah. And part of our discussion of that film, we didn't really get into the eco-terrorism or the terrorism side of it very much. Or like eco-martyrs
0: and things like that. Yeah.
1: Um, so this will give us a chance to do that a little bit more. Um, so the the three things we want to look at, um, two fiction films and then a documentary, which is another first. Uh, one is the film The East. Uh, I don't even is, know who made that movie. <laughs> I don't either. Uh, I yeah. don't think it was a very well-received or sort of like it wasn't a very big production has like Alexander Skarsgård and And, uh, Britt Marley Marley, who who doesn't carry a
0: lot of star power. No, you know, she's kind of indie. You
1: know, when you mentioned her name, I was like, I don't know who that is. Uh, And then Night Moves, which is uh, Jesse Eisenberg and Dakota Fanning are in that. Um, And these are both films dealing with eco-terrorists kind of in action um, and then the documentary that we were going to pair those with is, uh, If a Tree Falls, which is about the, um, Environmental Liberation Front elf. Um, and that was actually nominated for best documentary at the Oscars, unless I'm mistaken. So it was kind of more, maybe a little bit more of a big deal, or at least some people might've heard of it before. Mm-hmm. Um, so comparing, or not comparing, but combining these two films with this documentary, um, and with what we've already sort of talked about or not talked about with Toller from First Reform and just sort of having this general kind of discussion about the films, but also about this idea of, of eco-terrorism.
0: And, 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 and that even, I'm sure we'll get into the, the politics of that label of eco-terror um, as opposed to environmental activism. Yeah. Um, and, and did correct me if I'm wrong, didn't you say you saw Rob Nixon... Give a talk, yes. And he he implied that his next big book project is about environmental martyrs. Is that right? Yes. So maybe we can do a little research on that and have something to yeah. say about that
1: And too. and um, so he brings up like the martyrs, like uh, in uh, First Reformed, where he has like the picture on his on mm-hmm. his vest. Um, and in the past, you know, couple of decades, there have been more of these environmental martyrs than ever before. Um. Mm-hmm. And they're all located kind of in this equatorial band around rainforests and places where, um, you know, extractive capitalism is trying to bulldoze these sites that are not only critical for a sort of human heritage and the sort of historical uh, heritage, but also just for the health of the planet. Yeah, and that's
0: that's those places are where the rubber meets the road, and, and we feel like it's some other world. But, like, that's the shit that's making all... I mean, that's where... You know the natural resources are um, yeah. that's making all our bullshit, um, yeah. and so we are we are implicated. Anyway, we'll we'll get into that.
1: Yeah, and you know we'll probably talk about, it, but like the Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, who has said, you know, we need to just steamroll a bunch of the rainforest and open it up to all this shit, and and the United States opening up uh, national parks for fracking or whatever the fuck. Um, those are b- big issues, right? Those are political. Decisions that have a lot of Have a real world consequence Beyond just making your taxes go up sure. um, So You know that's that's important too But I would say it's more important If they're acidifying the ocean And <laughs> killing all, all these species And all that stuff uh, So yeah next week um, Night moves the east And if a tree falls uh, Talking kind of in, in a broad sense About those things uh, So yeah follow us on twitter at Anthropod tweets, uh, we are available on SoundCloud, Spotify, and on iTunes. And uh, I guess that's it. Can we play uh, that clip one more time of uh, Curtis? <laughs> that's what we'll go out. Of. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'll like make a remix and and, and put it <laughs> on there. Cool. I'll put a beat behind it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's enjoy great, that. That's a great yeah. idea. Roll that beautiful bean footage. <laughs>